Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Today that we are continuing on in Mark, we are in Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. And this is about that encounter, Jesus' encounter with the scribe. And I think you'll hear some themes that we have covered before. So, Alan, why don't you set this up for us? Thanks. Yeah, our text for today uh, is something of a follow-up to the episode uh, with Jesus' encounter with the rich man who thought he had kept all the commandments. And um, it's, it's set in the context of Jesus' disputes with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem during the final week of his life. Uh, we looked at that pretty much in depth last year in connection with Matthew's gospel. For whatever reason, the, com- the, the lectionary doesn't, doesn't track that with, with Mark's gospel, but that's okay. Um, so in the, in, the, in the lectionary, they basically just focus on the conclusion to this mm-hmm. sort of debate that's framed. And where, where a scribe who saw that Jesus answered them well, referring to his, his answer to the Sadducees mm-hmm. um, about marriage and the resurrection. So he ventures to ask Jesus what seems to be a genuine question. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. commandment is first of all? Now, I don't know that he's looking for information here. I think he's just wondering, okay, well, it sounds like you've, you've answered the Sadducees well, you know, and I'd be on the same page with you here. I wonder if we agree on, on, on the law. Right. And, it's and, different. Now, I think there's a tendency to interpret this in terms of Matthew. Right. And, um, and I think it's important for us to note, Matthew has a parallel, and in Matthew... It's more of an antagonistic yeah, kind of setting. Yeah, it's a different setting. Yeah. Right. And Luke doesn't have a parallel, but Luke has addresses this in connection with the, the introduction to the parable of the Good Samaritan right. in Luke 10. And that also is an antagonistic setting. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's easy for people to read that into Mark's gospel here, but... I don't think we should do it. I think we should uh, we should see that this is kind of a genuine dialogue between two people who I, I think for the scribe is thinking, hey, we may be on the same page here. It reminds me of the rich man whom Jesus loved. Exactly. That same kind of... Um, well, we're going to see at the end of this, Jesus is going to say to this scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Right, right. right. Exactly. So, so, um, so he asks, which commandment is the first of all? And of course, first here means most important, not first in a sequence. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and of course, in Matthew, it's framed, which is the greatest, greatest commandment. Greatest, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this makes sense, really, because the question regarding what constituted the sum of the law was one that the rabbis discussed. Although we should note at this point that it's even more difficult to date the, the rabbis' comments than it is to date gospel materials. So we have comments that are attributed to, say, Rabbi Hillel. Oh, right. And we, we can date Rabbi Hillel, but we can't know for sure if Rabbi Hillel said, said that or if it was attributed to oh, Hillel by a, later, yeah. by a later rabbi. Yeah. So, so dating rabbinic comments is, is a notoriously difficult thing. Okay. But, but it seems like from when you look at the rabbinic studies, it seems like this was a question that 
was sort of in the air in that day. Okay. You know, yeah. and, it, and it makes sense, right? That, that yeah. it, it would be. And so how does Jesus respond to the scribe? Well, you know, I think Jesus responds in a way that really would not have surprised anyone and should not have surprised anyone in the Judaism of that day if they had paid any attention at all to the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> so he begins by quoting the Shema mm-hmm. from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And we should note that the rabbis prescribed that the Shema be recited twice a day. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. So um, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jesus says, this is the first commandment. And it's important to note, I think, at this point, that while Matthew and Luke do tell similar stories, they are different enough from Mark that there is some question about the gospel relationships mm-hmm. within this text. Mm-hmm. Matthew and Luke, Matthew's and Luke's accounts are, are closer to one another in many respects than, than they are to Mark's right. Um, Mark's account. And so it's uncertain, you know, what's going on with, with the whole synoptic relationships. Well, and I'll note that Calvin actually noticed the differences, but in his desire to harmonize them, and I wonder how much over the years, particularly in our tradition, we can kind of blame our, our desire to combine these together on Calvin. I I think it predates Calvin, uh, because even going back to the early church fathers, you know, second, third century, Matthew had priority because Matthew was seen not only as the first in the canonical sequence, but as sort of the basis for the others. Yeah, yeah. So So, Matthew was seen as the primary gospel. Right. And and of course, then and then it continued. And and that was one of Calvin's major themes, right, was to was to harmonize them. But and I think. Unfortunately, we are still stuck in that now. I think uh, many of us are, are like, oh, I know what this is because I read it in Matthew. So, again, this is another one of those, right. um, we need especially, to let here, yeah. especially here where it clearly is, is different. It's very different, yeah. Now, I, I think it's important to note, only Mark cites Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. And I find this surprising because it seems that it might have been more suited to Matthew's setting where Matthew's addressing a Jewish right, Christian community. Right. But for whatever reason, Mark cites the whole first great commandment, including that first statement mm-hmm. about the Lord is one. And, and, you know, I think we should, we can also note here that the Hebrew text is a little more ambiguous and it can be interpreted as the new RSV does here. O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Mm-hmm. The Septuagint seems to make more explicit the emphasis on the monotheistic foundations of faith. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. And and the Greek uh, of the Septuagint is phrased that way. So, um, you know, uh, but here we have Mark addressing perhaps a, a Gentile Christian congregation in Rome, basically you know, beginning with the affirmation that the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. <laughs> and and so the basic monotheistic foundation of, of the faith of the mm-hmm. Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So um, the, why, what is unique about this idea of the great commandment is unique? That's unique in this also. Well, you know, I, th- I think, I don't think that would have been all that, unique to Jesus in, in, in his day. Um, but one of the things that is unique is that 
um, the way Jesus cites the first great commandment in Mark's gospel. Now, the Septuagint reads, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul mm-hmm. and with all your power. Okay? Mm-hmm. But in Mark, Jesus quotes it as, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Right, right. Now, um, Matthew's version follows the Septuagint more closely, which really isn't surprising because that's kind of a pattern with Matthew. Okay. He quotes pretty, pretty, clear, pretty, pretty consistently uh, the Septuagint. Luke actually has a variant of Mark's version in his account of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. So you, instead of the threefold, uh, threefold um, uh, heart soul and power, um, Luke has a, a variant of the fourfold heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, it's also worth noting that all this variation mm-hmm. between Mark and the Septuagint and between Mark and the other Gospels has produced quite a bit of textual variation yes. in Matthew's yes. Gospel and because I, the scribes always wanted to harmonize, you know, the text of the Gospels. Right. And, and and maybe even some of them, you know, if, if they're copying a whole codex of the of the whole, you know, mm-hmm. like like um, including the Greek of Deuteronomy. Uh, they they may have been aware of of you know some differences there, and they may have tried to harmonize that. I think um, one of the big questions when I, when I have third, heard this or, or thought about it is really a desire though to pull out this New Testament version, the fourfold version, and really drawing it as being different that they're adding mind to it than the rest of it. Is is it that significant to draw that out? I don't think so. I I think. I think um, in in a Jewish context, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, is simply a way of saying with everything that you are. That is that is. I don't think we're meant to draw specific uh, elements of a biblical anthropology out of that. Okay. I think it's just simply the 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 right. biblical way of saying love God with all that you are. And okay. we'll see we'll see a little bit later that Deuteronomy uses some other other ways to express that. Okay. Um, yeah, but yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've heard sermons on pulling out oh, and know, we also have, have to go to, with the mind. I and know. I think a lot of people might want to go there. I've heard so many. So I, I, I have heard them too. And I just kind of have to bite my tongue because that is not the sense of the Hebrew Bible. You know, the Hebrew Bible has more of a holistic sense of, mm. of who man is. And so it's a very holistic anthropology. Okay. And, 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 and although it can use these different words, there is no sense of divi- the dividing between the various parts of man. That's more of a Greek anthropology than it is a, a Hebrew, uh, you know, a Jewish anthropology. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, moving on, Jesus um, proceeds to cite a second command. Yes, and we have we should note this may have been an unprecedented move on Jesus' part to cite a second commandment along with the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, now, again, we should hear this. This may have been unprecedented, and I'm going to delve into that a little more. Now, of course, he's citing here Leviticus 19.18, right. which is part of what we know as the Holiness Code, several chapters in Leviticus, which are summarized by the command, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. One of the interesting facts that not many people know about Leviticus 19 is you'll find all the Ten Commandments paraphrased in a more specific manner there, Mm -hmm. except for the last one. So, for example, instead of just saying, you shall not steal, this chapter also says, you shall not deal falsely, 
In other words, mm-hmm. don't cheat somebody. Mm-hmm. You shall not defraud your neighbor. Remember, we saw that in connection with the rich man. And interestingly, you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. <laughs> in other words, if, if somebody does a day's work for you, you give them right. their pay because guess what? They probably need that money to go mm-hmm. and bu- go to the market and buy mm-hmm. food to feed their family that night. Yeah. Now, when Leviticus comes to the command to love your neighbor as yourself, again, it's framed very specifically. Um, loving your neighbor means when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very ages, edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. In other words, you shall leave them for the poor and the alien. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, I've been uh, thinking about that a lot lately, by the way. It's harvest season right? here. Now, um, loving your neighbor also means you shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You know, mm-hmm. very specific. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Loving your neighbor means you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, very specific. And beyond that, loving your neighbor, especially, in, it's in the same verse. In Leviticus 19.18, we, we just pull out, you shall love your neighbor right. as yourself. But the rest of the verse says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole verse. Yeah. So again, it's very specific. It's specific. It's very practical. Yes. And, and the, so in Leviticus, Leviticus, the command to love your neighbor as yourself was was formulated in context of practicing justice and mercy towards others in very practical mm-hmm. ways. So it's a, it's a very much a social justice kind of framework. Yeah. Now we we should note that in Leviticus, it, it's very likely that this originally applied to fellow Israelites. Um, and mm-hmm. Jesus expands this to apply to enemies. Mm-hmm. And of course, the New Testament then t- follows up on that and it applies it to pretty much all people. Right. So, uh, you know, here Jesus links the two commandments, and we're not surprised that the New Testament also links the two commandments fairly mm-hmm. consistently. Mm-hmm. You see this throughout the New let, Testament. Let me ask, because I think in our in our minds is a little bit of a touchy feely kind of oh, love everybody, be kind to everybody, but. What about this practicality you have identified? Is that also leading to what's expected in Absolutely. the New Testament? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think about First John four. You know, John says, you know, you can't love you can't love God whom you've not seen and not love your brother or sister whom you have seen, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 John will say, I think in John three, First John three, you know, let us not love in in with 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 just our words you know it let's just not profess our love but let's word in let's love one another in deeds and in actions right right. it's and it's consistent i mean the same thing is true in james faith without works is dead paul is the same Mm -hmm. way you know Mm -hmm. very specific ways in which the command to love is envisioned as being lived out Mm -hmm. Uh, paul even connects the command to love your neighbor as yourself with several of the ten commandments Mm -hmm. you know and so if you love that means you're not going to steal you're not going to commit adultery you know you're not going to kill you're not going to you're not going to bear false witness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and so yeah this this very practical approach to loving your neighbor that is the new testament approach to it as well Mm -hmm. absolutely So Jesus concludes then there is no other commandment greater than these. And actually in Matthew, Jesus makes a stronger statement on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Now, again, 
I think it's important for us to recognize that um, the discussion of the great commandments was something that was going on in Jewish dialogues about the law in that day. Um, but it's important to note, and Adela Yabra Collins tells us this in her Mark commentary, the consensus is that the two passages cited here, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, are not cited in combination in any ancient Jewish text prior to Jesus. Oh, that's interesting. And again, we should hear this. These two passages are not cited in combination in any Jewish text prior to Jesus. Now, she does point out that this combination was anticipated in substance and in function in Jewish literature. She points to contemporary parallels like the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, which were um, part of the Jewish pseudepigrapha collection, mm -hmm. and, and they connect loving God with loving your neighbor. Uh, a couple of passages in the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. Uh, she also refers to Philo. Uh, Philo divides the Ten Commandments into two sets of five. Mm -hmm. And he says that the first five concerns piety, and the second concerns justice. And those who practice the first, he calls lovers of God. And those who practice the second, he calls lovers of human beings. Mm -hmm. So, so you have, again, you have some contemporary literature that is, that is, that is putting love of God and love right. of others together. Right. But not citing Deuteronomy 6 yeah, it, 5 that is and Leviticus that, that 19 was never 18. cited together right. in a Jewish before literature. Jesus before, before Jesus, Jesus right yeah. right so again prior to even prior to all of that the testaments of the 12 patriarchs prior to Philo there is at least an implicit pattern I would say in the Hebrew Bible that focused primarily on loving God with all one's mm -hmm. heart especially in the prophets you see this the, the prophets continually call the people of Israel to love God with all their heart. Mm -hmm. but And we see it already in the Torah. Although they're not linked as directly as Jesus does here, the implication, I think, in the Hebrew Bible, both in the Torah and in the prophets, is that, that um, loving God will translate into acts of justice and mercy toward others. So I think it's clear that Jesus' combination of these two specific scripture passages is at least distinctive, and very likely he was the first one to bring them together mm. explicitly. But nevertheless, I mean, the, 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 the groundwork was already laid, even in the Hebrew right, Bible, right. for that combination. But what a, I, I don't know, what an awesome combination. Yes. I, you almost... We take it for granted these days. Right. We take it for granted that these two commandments, you know, love the Lord your God, the Shema, you know, right. and, and love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19.18. We take it for granted that they're to be, that they go together because we've been, we've read the, the New Testament all of our lives, right? right? But we, we really should note this was, Jesus was probably the first to explicitly cite these two passages together hmm. as the two great commandments. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So... How does our, our scribe respond to all of this? Well, we might be surprised because the scribe responds by saying, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and besides him there is no other. And to love, God, love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So, you know, essentially he's he's rewording Jesus' statement, but actually the way in which the scribe specifically words 
His response, which is a little different from the way Jesus phrased it, may allude to several Hebrew Bible texts, including Deuteronomy 4.35, Isaiah 45.21, and Joshua 22.5. You know, as you read this to me, uh, I, I keep wondering the tone. We never know what tone he's responding mm-hmm. to. I mean, is it a content, contemplative tone, like, oh, you're right? Or is it a, oh, you're right, that's what I expected you to say? Or is it, you know? I I would say for a scribe, you know, typically we might think this might be almost a tone of surprise, Mm -hmm. but pleasantly surprised because I think what he's saying is, wow, we're on the same page here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the way I interpret the, this is my interpretive framework Mm -hmm. for the law as well. Yeah. 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 And so again, we might we might not find this to be so surprising because scribes were the Torah scholars associated with the Pharisees whose influence was located in the synagogue right. as opposed to the priest whose influence is located in the temple. And so the fact that the scribe focuses on love for God and love for neighbor, which really is the moral function right. of the law as opposed to, to burnt offerings burn and sacrifices, yeah, that right? That makes sense. That right? makes sense. So it makes sense that a scribe would say that recognizing God is one Mm -hmm. and there's no other besides him, which may be a nod to the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods beside me. And that loving God and loving one's neighbor is much more important than than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, that, that it would make sense. But I think we should see also already, there was a tension between the prophets and the priests about the sacrifices in the Hebrew Bible. Yes, And yes. there are a couple of Hebrew Bible texts that essentially say the same thing. In 1 mm-hmm. Samuel 15, 22, you know, this is yes. Saul goes out and he, you know, he's commanded to destroy all of, of, of the, the opposing army and all the people, all the, all the livestock and everything. And, and, and Samuel comes up to him and, and says, Saul says, greetings, Samuel, I have done what the Lord has commanded. And, and yes, Samuel yes. says, really? What then is this uh, lowing of cattle and bleeding of sheep that I hear, you know, going right. on because he was supposed to destroy the livestock. And, and Saul says, oh, I saved them to be able to offer them to the Lord. And, and Samuel's response is, has the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord. And here in the Septuagint, the Greek is the same two words, holokatomata and thusiai, uh, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's the same two Greek words used in Mark. Oh, yeah. Same thing also in, uh, something similar also in Hosea 6.6, 6, uh, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than whole burnt offerings. And again, while it's, it's, there's a little bit more there, you do have that same word pair of holokatomata and thusiai in Hosea 6.6. So I I think we're meant to see this dialogue between Jesus and the scribe as a positive one. They, and I think maybe to the surprise of the scribe, they agree on the interpretive framework for understanding and putting into practice the commandments. So, and, and So again, it's the basis is affirmation that God is one, the the essential commandment right. is to love God love with all God. your heart, mm-hmm. and that leads straight into the second great commandment, which love is which is on the same level, basically, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, yeah. And so it should come as no surprise then that Mark concludes when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, "You are not far from the kingdom of God." Yeah, which is really, really cool and is unique in Mark as we pointed out earlier, right. um, because. 
my mind and many others, I think, come to this assuming it is in this, these two people are on opposite sides. It's and a so conflict it's narrative. It's confusing. Yeah. So this makes more sense. Now, yeah, this is, not, this is not a conflict scenario. And, and here's the thing. The reality is, in the Judaism of Jesus' day, Jesus and the Pharisees had more in common right. theologically right. than any other sect in Judaism. And so, again, the scribes were sort of the Torah scholars who, who, who served to, to articulate the interpretation of the law that the Pharisees followed. So that, that Jesus and the scribe would have the same interpretive mm -hmm. framework for the law really shouldn't come as that big of a surprise to us. But unfortunately, we're... We're, 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 we're too steeped in... Well, we, 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 because of our reading of the New Testament, we expect that any interaction Jesus has with a Jewish religious leader is going to be a conflict one well and as i'm thinking about this you've, we've said something kind of big here which is a continuity between the old Absolutely. testament and the new testament whereas you know and i was thinking about this this week i just had at my bible study the old testament which was separate which really had no bearing on the New Testament, which is new. No. And so this has often been interpreted as, oh, this is new because this has love your neighbors yourself. And, and they're, they're, they're t no. instead of seeing the continuity, yeah. which this is so yeah. big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, you know, and I've said it many times in, in my classes and, and, and in my various teaching episodes, you know, the, the, the Hebrew Bible is just as much a, a, about grace and love as the New Testament is. And the New Testament is just as much about practical obedience mm -hmm. as the Hebrew Bible is. And, and, and there is, um, the two go together. Love for God is, is the heart and soul, is the foundation. Right. And, and, that, and, and that is based on God. We're going to see that's based mm -hmm. on God's love mm -hmm. for us. But then it also must... Um, demonstrate itself in loving others in a very practical way and, and that is that that pattern is consistent throughout the bible and and that's obviously important um central and yet so many people don't hear it i have you know what heard I mean? it i have heard it preached from a presbyterian pulpit that in the old testament people had to earn their salvation exactly and that is not exactly true <laughs> so i um I've been having my classwork with Ellen Davis's getting involved with God, um, um, reading the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, she's a, a Duke scholar, at, uh, uh, especially in the Old Testament. But what's interesting is her whole point is this is God who has, from the very beginning, loved creation, God's creation. And this is God that has continued to work and love with us all the way through. So there's this continuity. Yeah. Of course, that's what I learned at seminary. But yet, how often do I hear this other? And it's narrative? been, it's, unfortunately, it's been repeated for generations. And so it's, it's sort of ingrained in people's minds. Uh, absolutely. And yeah. despite reading that, my people are, uh, they're, they're like more informed from the, a different way of looking at scripture. So I, it's like, I can't make any headway. Yeah. So but but I I love this. This is yeah. this this makes this makes theology work. This makes God's um, creation work. Really, yes, when you think absolutely. about it. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and I think again, I mean, really, what we're dealing with here is the question of Jesus' approach to the law. 
And, and, you know, we might be shocked, but I think if we look at the framework of Deuteronomy, we're going to find that there, this is where it all starts. And, mm -hmm. you know, there is a dynamic in Deuteronomy that insists on heartfelt obedience and love for God, mm -hmm. but it is based on God's love for Israel. Mm -hmm. So again, I want to emphasize this. In Deuteronomy, the, the love and obedience that God expects from God's people is based on God's prior love for the people of Israel. And so it's based on grace, you know, basically, yes, um, yes. you know, one of the, one of the things that, that, that Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy is, you know, it wasn't because you were any better than any of the other nations that, that the Lord, your God chose your ancestors. It was because he loved you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and what is that if not grace, right? Right, right. So we see this framework, especially in Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. Uh, Moses says, so now Israel, what does the Lord, your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord, your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, and his degrees that I'm commanding you today mm -hmm. for your own well-being. So we see some of that language again of yeah. holistic, yes. you know, heartfelt right. uh, obedience to God. And yet Moses goes on in this passage to base this on the fact that the Lord chose the people to live in relationship with him because he set his heart in love on your ancestors. Mm -hmm. That's Deuteronomy 10, 15. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, I think what often get often gets missed is that the basis for the commandments was the covenant. Yeah. And yeah, when you yeah. when you miss that, you, you know, you that's that's where you get off into this idea that mean God. Well, yeah. that well, and that's where you get off into this idea that the people in the Old Testament had to earn their relationship uh, with God. Yes, exactly. No, the covenant was a gift that right. came from God's love. Right. And so it, you have to understand the commandments upon the basis of the covenant right right and if you don't do that it gets really skewed yeah, but yeah. so so in deuteronomy the basis for the commandments was the covenant relationship god sought with the people and even in the hebrew bible i would argue that keeping god's commandments was never intended to be a means of gaining or achieving a relationship with god apart from god's grace rather from the even for already from the perspective of the framework of deuteronomy the commandments were a way of defining what a genuine relationship with God mm -hmm. looks like. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a theme that is consistent throughout the Hebrew Bible. Right. Uh, if, if, if we truly have encountered the love of God, right. uh, uh, reaching out to us to claim us to be a part of this covenant relationship, then we are going to live in such a way right you right. know we are going to love god with all our hearts we right. are going to honor god uh, we are right. going to honor god's name we are going to worship god we are not going to treat our our neighbors in the ways that the that the ten commandments spells out that we're not to treat them you right. know and it's not about we have to do this in order to gain a relationship exactly. with god exactly. it is because we have this relationship with right. God. And you see this in the prophets, you know. Right. You know, God chose you. Therefore, you of all people should be right. living in this way. Right. 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 <laughs> so that's the framework is that that um, the covenant is the basis. The covenant relationship is the basis. Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. commandments, therefore, define what living in that relationship with God genuinely really looks like in practice. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, uh, Alan's articulated this so well and so clear. And what is interesting, as you'll we'll find later, is that, that Calvin has articulated many of these same things, um, which is really interesting that this is part of this Reformed tradition. But his argument was that the, the church had fallen away and fallen back mm-hmm. into this kind mm-hmm. of earn my salvation concept, which he said was absolutely not um, how how it's meant to be yeah. and 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 but i think as human beings we are somehow we're tempted to that kind of well space. i think here's the thing you know we have to really read the hebrew bible seriously thoughtfully um um historically with a historical mm-hmm. framework yes we have to really read it together and read it right. seriously and not just as a proof text well, for for you know these are right. predictions of Jesus we have to read it seriously as scripture and i think we have to read the whole th- we have to read all of it yes right? and, and, and when we do that we see this framework this yeah. framework i think comes out very I, clearly i agree i agree I, I i keep thinking in terms of genre studies too i mean really when you think about the Old Testament, and it's all its different kinds of literature that are in mm-hmm. it that really reflect on really the, the joy of humanity and God's love of creation that, that comes through in all those forms. I mean, oh, I look so at it in that, that way. Mm-hmm. And, and even God's joy in the covenant relationship. You know, God takes great delight in, in choosing this people to be a blessing to all the nations of right. the earth. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and God takes great delight in, in, God, in, in the people when they do follow this love. And, and the, the, the discipline, the judgment that comes upon the people is not a matter of, well, we have this angry God in, in, in the Old Testament. It is more a matter of a loving parent who is seeking to bring you know, the away, wayward children back right. into the way that is for their best exactly. interest. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty, it, yeah. it's actually amazing. It um, is, it's, yeah. be, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. So I would advocate that Jesus was following a very similar interpretive framework for the law as Deuteronomy that focused on loving God mm-hmm. and, and that love for God found expression in obedience yep. Yep. In, in daily living by loving your neighbors loving yourself your neighbor. mm-hmm. and so he 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 sort of he's but yet i think we should understand that while jesus is following this interpretive framework of deuteronomy he does something unique here by expanding it to combine it with the command to love your neighbors yourself from the holiness code and so combined with the affirmation that there was only one god i think you know there's only one God. You love your you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You love your neighbors yourself. That pretty well covers the fundamental affirmations of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it really y- does. Y- if you read the whole Hebrew Bible yeah. with those three fundamental affirmations, that pretty well covers it. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the only one I would add is that that all, you know, loving God and loving your neighbor comes out of this covenant relationship right. that right. that mm-hmm. God has established. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, as I mentioned before, this seems to be the perspective not only in Deuteronomy, but also in the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. They consistently called the people of Israel to a heartfelt love for God that produced sincere obedience in the way they lived. And their love for God was demonstrated in the practice of mercy and justice toward others. And so I think that's why we can see this particular scribe 
agreeing with Jesus interpretation of the law. He had read the same yeah. Hebrew Bible that Jesus had read. Right. And he had, you know, was, was on the same page. Yeah, but they were on the same page. This continuity. It's like, yeah, Jesus is getting it. The scribe gets it. Yeah. Can and you Jesus get says, it? you're not far from the kingdom of God. Exactly. And Mark's saying, can you see, right. you know, are right. you seeing who this is? This is right. not somebody that's coming in to wipe everything out, but somebody that comes to fulfill it. Yes, and, indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, you know, as much as I would say, though, that Jesus' perspective on the law is in line with what we find in the Hebrew Bible and in Deuteronomy and the Hebrew and the Hidden Prophets, I think, again, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus was the first to combine the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God right. with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, with yeah. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself so explicitly. Mm-hmm. That is a first. And and this not only applied, uh, this not only defined, really, the, the New Testament approach to the law, but also defined, I think, our Reformed approach yep. to the commandments, as we see with, with Calvin, yep. right? Yep, yep. And the response then to God's love for us, right, in the covenant relationship that we have still with him, right. is to love God wholeheartedly, and that will lead us to love others by treating them with mercy and justice yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Well, friends, that's the first segment, which is awesome. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about um, how Calvin responds to this in a little bit. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back. And uh, we're going to let Christy uh, talk to us about um, how the Reformers uh, dealt with the, this passage and about with the commandments. So go ahead, Christy, take it away. Yeah, so I went ahead and, and took a look at um, Calvin's commentaries on this passage. And as I've kind of already indicated, in some ways he has this interpretive framework that is similar to what Alan, Alan um, introduced to us in, in terms of that he sees this continuity with Old Testament into the New Testament in terms of how these, these laws work. However... There are places here where he's very different, and I think it really reflects that harmonizing of the Gospels he tried to do, and really that kind of um, earlier attempt to think there is, instead of diff- these different lenses, that there was really one lens, and mm-hmm. it was trying to make sense of it all. So, well, I th- And, you know, I've said it before, um, I'm not surprised that Calvin um, um, has a similar view because mm-hmm. Calvin's basic exegetical approach was in, to interpret scripture in light of scripture. And that is the fundamental principle exactly. that I approach exactly. as well. So I'm going to go ahead and dig into this um, verse by verse. And um, just to give you an idea of how he differs and yet how he's similar. So in the, in the first part there where the scribe um, is asking, which commandment is the first of all um, Calvin responds, Look, in this case, he he says, "I'm I'm going to put Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, even though I recognize they are different and their situation. He even says situations are different, and yet he's still trying to say what is one thing I can hang my hat on that's the same." And he said he puts them together because this is the last test of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, and clearly he's reading he's reading Mark through the lens. Exactly. Of so already we learned that he's seeing this instead of this agreement sense that he's saying, look, they just left out details about this scribe. The scribe mm. really was a was a, 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 a an antagonist, angry, ang- antagonist yeah. angry Pharisee. So, yeah. and we just learned that that's not the case. But you can see how that has well, come down to us. And as I said before, I mean. Already in the early church, Matthew was the first gospel, not only in terms of precedence or order, Mm -hmm. but in terms of importance. And so, I mean, the church read the gospels in light of Matthew for centuries leading up to to Calvin. Exactly. And so then, um, and and, and then interestingly enough, even though he'll come at something similar, he'll, he'll... He'll say that the scribe thought the authority of the, the, the law was diminished by the gospel. In other, in other words, his presence. So again, he's coming at that mm. that position of being opposed to he's each assuming other. That, yeah. He's assuming that, yeah. that um, the scribe saw Jesus' message of the kingdom as being opposed to his Exa- own approach to Exactly, to God. exactly, which, yeah. as I said, part of the problem. Um, and so then um, coming to the next part where, um, and again, because he harmonizes the gospels, he doesn't actually always uh, make a, make a comment under each one of Mark's sure. faces. So the next set of comments he says is when Jesus answers, the first is hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Um, and here Calvin does pick up God as the creator and reminds us that it's easy to love God when God has adopted us. So he wants to make a big deal about this adoption. And we also introduced to this first space of love, um, that it's in God's doing that this love come out. So we start to pick up on some of this the reformation the theology. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, Calvin says that Jesus here is reminding them of the covenant that God made with them and that they should trust in God. Um, and, um, it is obvious since God reveals himself to them that they should resist idols. And yet so many will, will become involved with idols. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and obviously, I mean, I would think in my mind, I would think he's thinking of the Roman Catholic church. Well, and he doesn't say that and he doesn't go into detail there, but to me that, Having heard, having heard enough of what he said, I mean, exactly. it seems like you know, th- that's that's the reference. That, that's exactly how I interpreted him there. Yeah. So, and then he moves on um, to uh, responding to "You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul," and um, the summary of the law. And he pulls apart the two parts of the law. But the most important love for the commandments means nothing if they are not motivated by love for God. So he's tying in, look, these other responses to this love for God, which has to come because God has claimed them. Yes. So it's that irresistible yeah. grace that we become so part of the Calvin's um, theology that we we kind of claim as our own. Well, and again, yeah. it sounds like what the, the framework I was articulating. You know, mm-hmm. we love God because God loved us and chose us to be in this relationship mm-hmm. with him. And, and you know, that that's the that's the proper order. Right, right. And in putting, and, 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 you know, I asked earlier on about the four, you know, kind of this fourfold use. Calvin does say, look, the mind is there, but he, he ties the mind to the heart, right? But I think there's also a sense there that, so all, all the intellectual processes that come ultimately need to respond to the heart itself. So he pulls mm-hmm. in part more than Alan suggested probably wasn't what was meant, and yet 
um, he still is kind of looking at this broad, overall arching idea of love. Well, it sounds to me like that. I mean, that seems to be um, something that would have been uh, related to the context because of the rise of reason. And, uh, exactly. And the, you know, because for centuries, reason was not necessarily right. valued, you know. And, and so we, here we have the rise of reason. And, and that would make mm -hmm. sense that Calvin would point, mm -hmm. point, you know, say that we love God with our minds yeah. as well. And, and, you know, I wouldn't want to say that we don't love God with our minds, right? Because um, uh, my philosophy uh, professor in seminary, you know, his his philosophy text was with all your mind, right? And and yeah. it's yeah. an allusion to this, you know, and that that you know, basically, philosophy of religion is loving God loving with all God. your mind, exactly. And exactly. so I, I wouldn't exclude it. I would just you know say we don't have to pull it apart. Pull it apart, yeah. exactly. And so then the next the next piece there was commentary on was um, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And this is kind of an interesting space here because this really gets into some of um, Calvin's kind of deeper thoughts about um, theology. And also interesting here is his comments on love, I mean, loving your neighbor in the Institutes matches what he says here in the commentaries. And that's not always the same, mm -hmm. but he brings out the same point. Um, look, he says, look, the neighbor... Um, is important because if we're not thinking about neighbor and loving neighbor, our love falls to ourself. Mm. And so he, he, he's making an observation between um, kind of this self-obsession and, and instead of who God's calling us to be, which is to love, to love others, which is coming out of God's grace, which is really interesting. And he, he actually comes here. He attacks the, the sophists of the Sorbonne. Um, <laughs> and he claims, look, these people come out and they, they, they're basically saying they trust only in themselves. Um, whatever works might is right. And they don't believe in the truth and they yeah. don't believe in the truth, which is God, which is God's love. So there's this idea of the essence of truth coming from the person and the person defining it and defining it for whatever needs makes, which is so sounds so familiar to today versus God. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, just, just as a background, the sophist of the Sorbonne, the Sorbonne was the university, major university in Paris, yeah, yeah. and that would have been staffed by Catholic theologians, Ex right? Exactly. So he's, he's reacting Ex to that. Exactly. Yeah. And of course that, that was it, that emerged during the great kind of high middle ages. Mm -hmm. Um, and they of course are, are developing their, their ideas and teachings in the 13th century. But interesting, you know, obviously um, the sophists, also the, the original philosophers going back to the Greek age, right? These are pre-Socratic mm -hmm. thinkers. Um, but yet they're starting to push, you know, the other thinkers in Greece at this time, like Thales, are really trying to base their world on what essence is true, what can right. we can base on. So right. the the basis of truth is is water or fire or yeah, air and right. these these things they can identify. And these folks have eschewed that and they said, no, the basis of truth is is that we can't really know it. It's just ourselves mm -hmm. and we are definers. So it, it becomes a very self-centered kind of thing. And of course they were known because also you had to pay them for their wisdom. <laughs> so there's also this kind of element that comes instead of pure knowledge that it, you're paying these people for it, for their wisdom. And sure. so there's a lot of spaces. I, there I, I think though that historically we might speak of them as medieval scholasticism. 
rather than the sophist of Sorbonne. Would you agree with that? Or uh, yes, by the time we're talking about the so the the medieval period. But I think in both cases, when you're looking at either the sophists of Greek tradition and or as we right. move to the Sorbonne, you're still talking about a tradition that doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. They don't, mm-hmm. their big T truth is caught up in themselves. They, and they in, use reason to promote their own agenda to promote their own wealth <laughs> to make yes, money. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So that, I guess that's the point I'm trying to make is I'm maybe connecting things that are pretty far apart. But well, per, and it sounds like it sounds like Calvin may be doing the same thing, but he's he's basically saying, you know, you got you medieval scholastic Catholic scholars, you know, you 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 have all of these sophisticated arguments, but essentially all you're you, you're just sophists, just like the Greek sophists exactly. because you're just using using your knowledge and exactly. your wisdom and your reason exactly. to enrich yourselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so anyway, and then we also discussed in another set of comments is uh, 1233 where Calvin does, he reflects that the neighbor here reflects to all humankind uh, again. So we had kind of already mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And then moving down, the last set of comments for this was um, 1234. So when, when Jesus said answers wisely, he's, because he's seeing this as a contest, he goes in um, to, to kind of say, well, it, it, he's reading it like this guy has this tone in his voice. says, oh, um, I agree with you instead of saying. Sarcastic. It's kind of sarcastic. Yeah. And he, he puts this in here, which I think is really kind of funny. He says, they desisted from their wicked obstinacy, for they groaned with wind like wild beasts shut up in their dens, or like unruly horses, they bit the bridle. So, so in other words, the guy, the scribe, He's forced to agree with him, but he doesn't really want to. Exactly. And when Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, perhaps Jesus is speaking ironically. I, I, I think In other that's words, exactly. you're, you're way far from yeah, the kingdom. Yeah, I think that's exactly how he's understanding <laughs> yeah. it. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it that way myself. I don't either. So anyway, um, the, next, uh, the next thing I wanted to do then was to kind of think about this in terms of overall themes that I saw with this passage fitting in with Calvin's theology. And, and I looked a little more at the institutes here. But really, the big emphasis, which we are kind of on today, was this concept of love um, and this love that stem, stems from God. Um, and from God's creation, um, and that's summed up according to Calvin in this first, in this um, first law. This um, and the first uh, commandment. First commandment. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, and you know we see this obviously throughout Scripture, right? We see this heavily in Paul, the Corinthians, this idea of love, this love of reciprocity, um, and a love that shapes Reformation practice and. I, I have mentioned this before, and while I'm talking about Calvin here, when you think of Luther, this was centered to Luther as well, mm-hmm. that, um, that God is love. And if you recall, Luther had his, his official symbol that mm-hmm. he made, had the big heart in the center. Mm-hmm. So um, I point that out because sometimes I think, particularly with Calvinism, that emphasis on love is really overlooked we tend to think of it as being kind right. of harsh we tend to think of you know the frozen chosen in church that don't show any emotion and therefore that love isn't central and even in geneva switzerland we think of that as being so harsh and and demanding and yet we forget that geneva was a place of great charity um that there was such a 
an action of love towards neighbor that there was really no poverty there because people Mm. were taken care of. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't think I don't think when we think of Geneva, I don't think we associate that with the practice of this widespread charity for all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we think of sort of, like you say, the stern consistory that is um, enforcing rules and regulations and restrictions on the whole city. Exactly. And, you know, you see Calvin in these dour portraits and, you know, we think of him as this very rigid kind of guy. And, And we don't think of this just outgoing expression of love in, in terms of charity right, to, to all. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, so it's an interesting, um, <laughs> it's an interesting space, isn't well, it? Well, I think it's important to, to really understand Calvin, you know, more fully, that, mm-hmm. that this was what he was, this was the, this was what he was after, you know, in terms of how the Geneva church lived. Right, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, and that they lived in this, you know, working working out uh, that you would be responding in love to neighbor mm-hmm. and to all people who came to Geneva, and there was this great welcoming, and, and Luther, too, you know, Luther was known for this household, he just kept inviting whoever mm-hmm. was on the street, come live in my house, and the place was wild, and his wife mm-hmm. was very gracious and continued to, um, you know, make sure all the guests were fed and housed. And he lived at a subsistence level because he was giving, always giving so much Hmm. um, away. So, you know, both of these characters really kind of fulfilled this love of neighbor in a very, very real way. Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow. We don't we don't normally associate that with Calvin, I think. No, well, and the second one was Luther, right? Yeah, right. But in particular, Calvin was. I think so Luther. Luther. We we might tend to think of that more, more with Luther, but not not Calvin. No. I don't think. Now Calvin was so sickly, and that's I think partly mm. why we think of him as dour. He had a lot of health issues, mm. and so um, and. He was. He forced himself to work despite being. I was going to say. I wondered sick. to what to what extent that was due to his his uh, work schedule. And yeah, that, and his work ethic was was huge. But um, writing a sermon every day—that's pretty uh, yeah, intense. Yeah, he was. You know, so um, that may have explained also why he seems so dour to us, yeah. right? He probably yeah. didn't feel good most of the time. Um, so another thing in in that came about with all of this was this concept of truth and at big T truth, I would say, is that um, one of those spaces that we don't always talk about when we're just talking about Calvin, but, but that this big T truth is certainly involved with God and God, that God and God's very being is a God of love and that love in itself requires, uh, it, it requires a, a an object mm-hmm. it, 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 it love of self doesn't fit within who God is. Mm-hmm. And that was really a theme that came from this and is articulated in many different ways throughout Calvin. And you can't be, you can't be a lover of God. Um, if you aren't indeed loving neighbor, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense. And so, well, and you know, cu- a couple of comments there. I'm, uh, Moltmann, uh, comes at it from the same perspective, you know, that love requires an object. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I've, I've mentioned before, one of my favorite philosophers of religion is John Caputo, and he has a little tome called On Religion. And in there, he, he also, you know, frames this as, you know, you can't love God without loving others. And yeah. it just doesn't work. And 
Um, and, and that really goes back to Augustine. So again, we're seeing, I think, some significant continuity, you know, yes. in, in the theological tradition right, as well. Right, And then the third, se- third theme that I saw was just this concept of neighbor. Um, and while Calvin did acknowledge, as I mentioned previously, that indeed he saw that in Jesus's world, the neighbor really responded to the world, but yet he's, he's realistic about it. He says, look, the closer the relationship, the closer people are to us. But, and, but he says, look, I don't think this offends God. And he says, for providence leads us to it. In mm-hmm. other words, it's kind of a, a space of, but as we are loving those closest to us, that is causing them to love those. So it, it right. moves it, on. It's concentric it's, circles. Exactly, so yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, because I do think there's a stress sometimes of, how much do I give? If I give, 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 but there's so much need and you exhaust yourself right. with it. And it's this, this sense of there's some practicality built into this right. as well. I mean, you know, we, we have the most direct contact with the people who are closest mm-hmm. to us in proximity. Um, I don't have any direct contact with anyone in China or Russia or in Egypt. Exactly. I do have some direct contact with a pastor in Nicaragua and with some Presbyterian nuns in Cameroon, you know, and I'm able to interact with them directly. But, you know, again, yeah, I mean, how, right. how, can, I, how can I practically love someone in Japan when I don't even know anybody in Japan? Right, right, <laughs> right. Um, so I thought that was an interesting um practical sense to it and and really again if that love is is pushing through all of all of the christians and the world it, it it's going right. to emanate it's it's not going to be the responsibility of one person well and it seems very pastoral on on calvin's yeah, part yeah you know to to help people understand this point that you love those whom you can and god's going to take care of the rest so that right. it extends to the others Ex- exactly yeah. and it, it kind of makes sense too then with uh, ultimately how the church is going to be set up with sure um, with its people that are doing these different roles, you know, with your with your deacons and with the teachers, and these different people have different calls, so it all fits neatly in a package. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were kind of the main things. I um, I was, and just to finish up, I uh, was thinking about the church as a whole, and so I did just a tiny bit of research on some of the things going on because, you know, how is love handled in in a church today and you know i think when we have a church that's so divided and into different um into different denominations and different concepts of the big t truth um that we tend to not reflect really necessarily who god is and uh we don't tend to necessarily show this same love for other christians and i I think it, you know, one might say, well, because some traditions would not recognize the authenticity of others, so they're, they're again, they're, they're, they're drawing it from an individual point instead of from God's providence, and I just thought that was interesting, and so I did a little research, and um, actually, there's there's a, a tradition of this that the Reformation is actually in the Roman Catholic tradition that the Reformation is the problem with why the church split apart, mm. and therefore the problem with mm-hmm. with why um, why love of neighbor has fallen away. And it's not wow. a, it's not a very good argument, but it really starts in the nineteen well. No, it starts with the Reformation, but it, it really gets pushed home in the 19th century. And uh, there was a new 
book by Brad Gregory from Notre Dame yet again, who is saying the same thing. If look, we had all stayed together and we're all following these these laws of the church together, then we would indeed not have this division mm. and claiming that that then led to secularism. And, and there's wow. a, a lot of problems with with this and suggesting um, that it's the Reformation that caused that when really you're looking at a church that had already fallen away yeah. from responding in love to neighbor. And um, I think... Um, I think what you see here and then what you see with the ultimate division and probably a lot of problems today is simply the human sin that takes over. And it, sure. I don't think you can blame it on one thing, but right. that we are such selfish beings by nature. And that's why we engage ourselves with God and we ask for forgiveness and we show up and worship so that, um, so that we could be renewed and reminded and and just loved, um, even though maybe we don't deserve it. Right? Well, and unfortunately, <laughs> all too often, our our primary mo- motivation is a selfish one and not an altruistic one. Yeah, it is. And and you know, just pushing back a little bit, you know, I th- I mean, obviously, we know that what sparked the Ref- the Reformation was the corruption within the Catholic Church right. and with the sale of indulgences where people were being manipulated exactly. by exactly. the the eternal that's destiny the, the of their point. loved ones exactly. in order to raise money to build, you know, St. Right. Paul's, you know, right. church in Rome. And, exactly. and so, you know, it's, you know, I would want to say, yeah, maybe you should look in the mirror first before you go pointing the finger at, at somebody exactly. else. Exactly. And not to say that the Reformation was, right. was pure and perfect in terms of their motives, because you can see it in some of the confessions, you know, where they're, Absolutely. they're, they're, their hostility towards especially the Catholics is, right. is very um, obvious. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's an interesting, It's it, it was anyways interesting, and I think it plays out today, um, and, uh, and it plays out today as denominations get, instead of working together, and mm-hmm. as Christians, instead of, 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 of seeing eye to eye get really well i'm a true christian you're not and they're they're they're, again that self their self-judgment instead of saying hey what do we hold in common we hold in common that we believe in god's love and that we trust in god's guidance and um maybe we approach it from different perspectives but we we still that is the foundation yeah, yeah yeah so we will be back friends thanks thanks Hi, everybody. We are back to talk about some of the implications of this. And, um, you know, as in our little break, Alan and I were talking about really if indeed this practice, this practice of faith sounds good to all of us, and yet is it really working out in the way we're living in our world? And so, Alan, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, so to me, again, I see this framework that we've articulated as – really the heart and soul of biblical faith. So it begins with um, this love of God that claims us for a relationship with God. That's, the, that's where it starts. And, 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 and God loves us out of his grace and out of his choice and simply because God is love, right? Mm-hmm. It's not because of anything we do. And, and the Bible teaches us that if, if we truly experience that love 
that God has for us, then we are going to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We're going to love God with all that we are. Uh, um, But then the Bible goes on to say that, you know, that love for God is going to very naturally lead to loving our neighbor as ourself, which again, in the biblical faith, is defined in terms of of relating to others um, in very practical ways um, by carrying out um, uh, deeds of mercy and justice. And to me, I think that is the whole framework of mm-hmm. biblical faith, but I think it gets broken down. I agree. I uh, agree. The connections get lost. At, you know, we lose sight of the fact that it all begins with God's love for us. And that, that, that has to be there right. in order to fuel our love right. for God and our love for others. Right. Well, and it kind of reminds me of this, again, when, when things are, are brought in through the self. Well, I'm a good person mm-hmm. because I do all of these things. I mean, this is what the atheist will tell me. I do all of these good things, and therefore I'm a good person. And it's like, but what is your, your reason for doing things always stems from me and ultimately often spans back into and 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 how does that benefit me and maybe it's in somebody saying oh you did something nice for me and um it's always it's always lacking i think mm-hmm. it's always lacking because the 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 whole the whole definition of of this truth for them is is in themselves and the same stuff calvin fought against right sure well, and we see it. I mean, obviously, we're living in this pandemic era where so many people are saying it's my body, my choice, you mm-hmm. know, whether whether I get vaccinated, whether I wear a mask and all this other stuff. And, you know, I mean, back in the 80s, you know, cultural observers spoke about the me generation. I mean, right. our our culture in, in the United States has become so turned in on itself exactly we as people have become so turned in on ourselves that we just i mean if, if there is any appreciation of love for god it or, or god's love for us it is just oh i am thank you god for loving me or blessed assurance jesus is mine you yes, know it's it's yes. a it's a self-oriented it is it is perspective on god's love for us that it's oh it's sort of all about me right and right. that is not well the and biblical if, view of if, God's love for us. And if God loves me, won't I'll get this disease and I'll be saved. And not even right. realizing that lack of action there to go get a vaccine which could save others mm-hmm. is really the call. And I'm seeing that over and over and over again. Sure. And I, I kept thinking about all the brave souls that went out there and, and tried the vaccines yes. out to, yes. to volunteer their lives for everybody yes. else, yes. thinking of that and then the selfishness of, oh, I don't know if I should get it now. I need to do mm-hmm. my own research. I need to mm-hmm. get over yourself. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, the reality is this is our call on right. each other as neighbors. Well, and that's just one. That's just obviously one aspect of all of this but there's so many other aspects of that Abs- in our culture Ab- oh our it's culture, the culture is just- so turned in on itself and and we as people are so turned in on ourselves yep. we have just distorted god's love for us into this sort of of um sort of exaggerated self-esteem run amok right. you know so you know i think to me a a, a more um um, healthy, a healthier perspective on God's love for us 
has to lead us through this whole framework. Right. God's love for us leads us to love God right. with all that we are, which means we're going to follow God's ways. You know, we, right. we can't right. just say, oh, how I love Jesus, you know, and, we, because, because we, we, if we're going to say we love Jesus and if we truly do have that appreciation right. for God's love for right. us and, and that leads to a love for God, then that is going to lead us as, as, as yes. the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament reminds us. That's going to lead us to do things. Absolutely. It's going to lead us things. to live in a certain way. Right. Right. And, and, and of course, the, the focus of that then becomes love for neighbor. Right. In practical, as we saw in Leviticus, very specific actions that constitute mercy and justice. Exactly. For exactly. And, and, you know, one of the ways we've talked about this before in this podcast, one of the ways I see a disconnect is that people want to go just straight to the social justice yes, aspect of it. Yes, that's right. That's and right. leave out the rest of it. And, you know, well, some people do that. But, you know, in my mind, that's going to burn itself out. And, and actually, it was, it was one of my favorite Roman Catholic theologians, Paul Knitter, uh, has a book called Without the Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. He was a, yeah, yeah, he, was there a, you go. Right. he was a Roman Catholic theologian, taught theology in a Roman Catholic university for 40 years, married to a Buddhist woman, and himself took the Buddhist vows while maintaining his Christian faith. Um, um, but um, his point was, he, he, he reflected on some Christian activists who were going to Central America to, to help you know, the, the persecuted Christians there um, who were being persecuted by, by some um, um, violent rebels who were rebelling against the, the government at the time. And it was, it was a, I think it was a, a Buddhist monk who counseled one of them? He, he was in a spiritual advisory kind of relationship. One of these, one of these mm -hmm. uh, people who were going to Central America he was in a sort of a spiritual advisory kind of relationship with this Buddhist monk, and he said, "You know, if you're going there out of anger, you're only going to make matters worse." Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and um, you know. I think this speaks to this whole framework, right, you know, that, right. and, and this is where Paul Knitter comes in. He says, you know, that this is the Christian framework as well, that we have to, we have to have yes. this sense that God loves us unconditionally, irrevocably. Right. Right. And, and there's no, there's no question about that. That's the starting place for having the courage to love God with all of our hearts in a way that expresses itself in loving neighbor sacrificially through right. true acts of mercy right. and justice. Right. And, um, uh, you know, uh, it's all of a piece. That, that framework is all of a piece. You can't chop right. it up into, into separate pieces. You can't chop pieces. it up. And yet, you know, as you're talking here and I'm on board, I realize how easy it is mm -hmm. to fall away guilty. And so... It is that reminder of how much I, I I really need to rely on God's love, on accepting that grace, and on also doing those things that bring me into much as much possibility. You know, the spiritual disciplines that help bring me back in line, if you will, with with. Um, and it's not just the 
it's not just the social activist kinds of things that, mm-hmm. that, but you know, being in worship, reading my scripture, um, um, prayer, all those spiritual disciplines to help keep us, keep us kind of in tune with God's love. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm reminded of. It's like, yeah, well, guilty. <laughs> well, and, you know, to me, it's as simple as praying the Lord's prayer. Yeah, that's true. We're doing a study on the Lord's prayer um, in, on Wednesday evenings. By the way, if you're interested in it, it's, uh, it's recorded and it's on our Higman Presbyterian Church Facebook page. Um, but um, my, I'm using a book by Will Willeman and Stanley Hauerwas called Lord Teach Us. And the premise is that when you pray the Lord's Prayer, number one, you are aligning yourself with Jesus' kingdom um, priorities. Mm-hmm. And number two, then if you're if you're sort of leaning into these things that Jesus advocated, then that's going to shape the way you live. Mm-hmm. It's not. I mean, it's, it's going to shape your faith, but it's also going to shape the way you live. Right. And, and you know, yet how many of us we've prayed the Lord's prayer all of our lives? Right. We come to that part of the worship service, we just kind of gloss it over it, and you right. just kind of say it, and we not we say it without thinking it. It's like singing, you know how great thou art or something right. like that, a hymn right. that we know by heart. Well, but yet if you think about each yeah. aspect of the Lord's Prayer, almost every phrase right. connects us with um, this whole interpretive framework well, exactly. <laughs> in Jesus' teachings. Although, even if you are going through the motions and saying it, and it doesn't, I find that at those times of great stress, how often do those phrases mm-hmm. pull into your mind? They do. Or maybe a choice you're going to make, and uh, and all of a sudden you are called. Oh, wait a minute! That's that's a choice that would be opposed to God's kingdom. So I find that even though it would be ideal to be right. very meditative on each phrase each time, even if it's not, I think there's value because I Surely. think I think that at the end of the day, it, it still comes back into your space. Well, and you know, N.T. Wright actually advocates, so he, has an, he has a book on the Lord's Prayer as yes, well. Yes, he does. I think yes, it's called does. The Lord in His Prayer, just simply that. And he, in his preface, he says, you know, there are different ways that you can, you can approach this. And one of the things he suggests is, you know, meditating on a different phrase yes, yes. of the Lord's Prayer each day of the week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is an interesting approach as well. But, you know, I, I, my point is, I think when we think about spiritual disciplines, we sometimes think it has to be sort of complicated. And I find the most, oh, no. the most effective ones are, are the simplest. I think simple. Yeah. I think simple. And, and I mean, you know? since the Lord's Prayer is something that is so much a part of our lives, right. why not start with that? Exactly. Yeah. I, coming to worship. That's yeah. simple, but that's huge. Just b- b- d- constructing your week, your Sunday with that in mind. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Alan, I thank you. I think this was a fun, fun day. It was for me too. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.